again and welcome to Campion Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Dre, lecturer in literature here at Campion College. In 1999, The Matrix was released into cinemas and seemingly overnight remade the expectations of blockbuster entertainment. From its popularization of experimental visual effects to its integration of Hong Kong action cinema techniques such as wire work and kung fu, from its philosophy-infused dialogues to its mainstreaming of the cyberpunk genre, The Matrix profoundly impacted popular culture in a manner perhaps only comparable to the release of the first Star Wars film. Being a commercial and critical smash, a sequel was almost inevitable, and four years later, in 2003, The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions had the unenviable task of living up to the already hysterical expectations of an audience rabid for more similarly evolutionary entertainment. Despite making a good deal of money, conventional wisdom is that the second and third Matrix films failed to live up to the hype with the third in particular harbouring a reputation of being almost the go-to punchline for disappointing conclusions. But removed from all the hysteria, does that assessment remain true today? With eyes no longer clouded by expectation, is it possible to see the story told in the Matrix trilogy for what it is, and not what many had suspected it would be? To discuss the Matrix films, and to give what I hope will be a spirited defence of why the concluding two films in the trilogy are, in his opinion, unjustly maligned, I'm joined today by Dr. Luciano Boschiero, lecturer in both history and science and dean of Campion College. Uh, Welcome and thank you for joining me today. Hello, Colin. So, obviously, in my intro, I divided the Matrix series up into two segments. The first film, almost universally beloved... And then the sequel. So I was kind of hoping in our discussion we could follow that pattern, talk about the first film, uh, what we liked about it, what issues we may have had, and then talk about the follow-up to to the film. Okay, excellent. So forgive the hackneyed phrasing, but when did The Matrix have you? You know, were you amongst one of those uh, initial viewerships wandering out of the cinema in the days, or did you come to the franchise a little later? Sure. Um, Look, I I saw it at the cinemas. I remember I was um, in university. And I had it's one of those experiences, that cinematic experience, where you go in with no expectations. I didn't know what the movie was about. Um, oh, that's fantastic! And and I was blown away. So I had one of those experiences where where you walk out of the cinema and you don't feel like you really need to say anything to anyone yeah. for a while. You just need to let it sink in. And, but one thing is for sure, and that is that you had a great time. Mm. Right, but. With The Matrix, I also felt immediately that there was a lot there to unpack. So that, that's why I just felt I, you know, I needed to think about it for a while. But yeah, 99, that's when I saw it first and loved it. I, I think I had a very similar experience even to the... Mm. Uh, it was a uni movies screening that I went to, which uh, I'm not sure... University of Wollongong? I was, yeah. Yeah, so yeah I we, saw it in Wollongong. We would have seen the same... Uh, we would have been in the same <laughs> cinema, actually. Perhaps. Which, which, to give context to people, the uh, uni movies uh, at Wollongong is fantastic, but it's uncomfortable seats. It's mm. like if you're in for the long haul film, it, it gets a little dicey, particularly mm. if you're seeing two films back to back, which was popular at the time. Mm. But I had the same experience. I remember leaving that that uni movies, and it was like myself and my friends just floated home. We were just mm-hmm. <laughs> so sort of thrilled by what we'd seen, trying to unpack not just the experience of oh, how cool was that scene, but uh, there is no spoon, you know, take these mm. concepts, these, these things that you wouldn't usually get in an action film, these ideas about perception and understanding of self and, you know, the, the limits of possibility. These were things that suddenly you, you weren't overreaching. The, these were things that the film 
compelled you to grapple with? Yeah, look, all of those issues were, I felt, really important uh, for a movie to try to, to tackle. I mean, I, I never seen a movie that, that tried to do anything like this in this way. And, and by this way, I mean an action movie. So one thing that, that stands out, one thing that that was probably the easiest to talk about coming out of seeing that movie was the action sequences yeah. because it's just amazing. Right? <laughs> no one had ever done anything like this before. So that that was spectacular and wrapped up inside that action were all these other themes. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't like the action mm. films were just sort of indulgent asides. Mm. They were ways in which the the characters grew and better understood themselves. Obviously, mm. you get the the catchphrases like "I know kung fu" and stuff like that. Mm. But but the ones that that really linger are the you know, do you think that's air you're breathing now? You know, th- mm. those kind of questions of uh, falling down the rabbit hole. In- oh yes, <laughs> so we we can get to the Alice in Wonderland references. <laughs> right. The Wizard of Oz. This, the Wachowskis were clearly in love with the um, red pill or the green pill. <laughs> These are things that stay with us. Uh, well, after watching the movie, yeah, right? and, and a constantly parodied as well. Absolutely, yeah. but it is it, like the the action scenes aren't. I guess as I'm poorly trying to articulate, they're not. They're not just sort of shoved in there just because you need to to break up the long wordy philosophical musing. They actually manifest the characters' journey. So, as well as being whiz bam spectacular, that amazing kind of visuals. They are showing the, the growth of, of Neo and their understanding of his, his ability to literally break the world around him, which, again, was, was so unique to see an action film that, this sounds really stupid, but, but justified the excesses of its explosive... Quite, quite often, the dialogue and some of the complicated dialogue is in the middle of the mm. action sequences. I think that makes it even better, right? These, these are not things that you can just turn off and just enjoy for a while, right? You have, yeah. to, you have to keep move, keep your mind moving with the action that is unfolding on the screen, but also the themes that are unfolding on the screen. It's Excellent. like the most kinetic, incredible mm. PowerPoint presentation you could yeah. ever possibly <laughs> hope to experience. Right. Um, for the one person in the universe who hasn't seen the first Matrix film uh, and who for some reason is listening to this podcast as their first introduction to it. Maybe we should give a a quick account of the story of the first film because I do think it comes to represent why the film struck such a chord and also I'm I'm setting up our discussion for later why I think audiences reacted so negatively to the sequel. So uh, the first film begins with Mr. Anderson, uh, Neo, being introduced to the idea that the world around him is a construct that is operated by machines. Uh, he is brought to this knowledge by two terrorist heroes, uh, Morpheus and Trinity, who snap him out of the facsimile of the world in, in which he's trapped, the Matrix, and reveal to him that he's a prisoner of machines who are using him like a battery. From that point on in the film, it's about Neo coming to understand that he is some kind of techno-Christ figure who is able to re-enter the Matrix and free people from their constraint, and in fact to break the rules of the reality in which he exists. So it's a cyberpunk hero story. In in many ways, a very conventional classic hero story, including the, the hero's journey that has the refusal of the call and the disbelief and the sending out into the wild to find the... It, like, it follows those very conventional ideas, but 
by introducing all of these philosophical concepts, these notions of Buddhism and uh, Christianity and folding in lots of, as I mentioned, children's fiction references as well, uh, white rabbits and falling down the, uh, the rabbit hole. So what was it in there that uh, struck you as particularly uh, meaningful in, in your watching and your rewatching? Look, I think um, those moments where, where Neo is early on grappling with this idea of, of what's happening to him and what, what the world is. And he's refusing it at first, but you know he will accept it. And the small things that happen to him, not the big encounters with Agent, Agent Smith, for example, but, but the, the small things that happen to him early on when he starts entering the Matrix for example, when he when he has that what he describes as a déjà vu moment. Oh yes, with right, the cat. right, and and we all have those those little moments. Yes, but in in the movie they're they're telling, right? Mm. They, they reveal where he is and what's happening. He doesn't even realize it though. But we all have those moments, and yeah. and for me it was it was this thought: what if we're tapped yeah, into yeah. a matrix? <laughs> <laughs> I thought in this crazy whirlwind movie there's this one thing that you can relate to, right? That's this great. experience that he's going through. I thought that that was the entryway into into this movie, for me anyway, no, that's um, in appreciating its its value. Then once the movie starts to pick up momentum, one of the, the first themes that, that struck me was the relationship between man and machine. Yes. But it's, it's probably the, the most obvious of the themes of the movie that they touch on and, and it bubbles to the surface every now and again they talk about it but at the time when i saw it in 1999 what, what i'm a, an historian of science and um, one of the subjects that i was very interested in as a student was the relationship between science technology and man society so here here is this movie that presents this in a very nice little package yeah. when you say nice anyway. you don't mean like well, pleasant no not pleasant but I guess the the theme of the relationship between man and, and technology, mm. the interdependence yeah. right, of one with the other. Some some of the most striking images in the film are, say, like the the baby surrounded by metal and the, these kind of cords that are plugging into them. All, all of the the remaining horror that comes even after they're taken out of the matrix of those holes mm. that continue to mark their body. But even when they're released from the matrix or from their containment, they're still living i mean they're they're on these ships yeah um, once you get to see where they're living in zion you see that how dependent they are on the machinery that, sust- that sustains their life you know they are fighting against the machines but they are also living with the machine and that's the premise for the whole movie right and there's this yeah. tension this conflict and you're and, right because there, there's know. no there's no one without the other even mm. Even Neo's ascent into this ultimate techno-Christ figure, I'm going to use that term again because I was happy with it, that ascent to this sort of all-powerful being within the Matrix comes from him being used like a computer. They download information mm. into his head. So it's not, you're right, you can't disentangle the man from the machine even in the man's conflict against the machine. That's right, yeah. This topic of the interdependence of man and machine is relevant to the 1990s, especially you know, if you think about what's going on in that era, the Human Genome Project, the development of nuclear weapons, even though there's an, a, a bit of an abatement in the 90s, arguably, of the proliferation of nuclear weapons. We're on the verge of supercomputers and, mm. um, and people starting to talk about artificial intelligence. 
there is this sense, or there was this sense in the 90s, that we are in a relationship with computers and they are, they are part of our daily lives. I mean, when I started university in the early 90s, you know, I still didn't have an email account. But by the yeah. time I finished university in the late 90s or around 2000, we couldn't live without it. Yeah. So you know, The Matrix, the movie, is right in the middle of that. So I think that's, a, that's another issue that struck me when I first yeah. saw that movie. And um, also that, that liminal space between kind of self-awareness of machines, that, that idea mm. that we were on the precipice of, of AI and computers that, that weren't only assisting us and in, in becoming integrated into our lives into, in very complex, inextricable ways, but also that they were behaving in ways that we didn't quite understand. And of course, it's a, a very familiar paranoia at the end of the 20th century, but the Matrix leaned right into that concept of, well, if they become self-aware, not just in a terminator sense they're going to kill us all but just the question of what does that mean for us even without them trying to control us and dominate us and and kill us what is the result uh, for our conception of ourselves if we are unable to disentangle what's real and and what's our own idea and again Mm -hmm. that 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 idea of growing alongside this burgeoning intelligent life form that isn't just working in opposition with us, but has actually brought us into a new understanding of ourselves. You can't just then rip that apart, even if you're at war with it. That's a long, convoluted sentence that went yeah, nowhere. But... No, it, it, it does for me, a bit like the architect's explanation. Like, the, yeah. I, I, hey, I could follow that. Um, how dare you? Uh, so, remember the... Ergo, ergo, sir. And vis-a-vis the... Uh, <laughs> remember the, the Y2K... Mm. Virus. I mean, so everyone in '99 was Absolutely. talking about this. Planes and were going to drop from the sky. That, Computers were going to blow up in our faces. That's right, and we couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, right? it's just going to be. And there's no amount of technical expertise that can stop those computers from ticking yep. over to zero zero. Yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> and the planes are going to fall from the sky. Absolutely. Um, and we're, we're in this relationship that we don't know where it's going to end for us as as human species. But one. Th- possibility exists that it could end disastrously for us <laughs> and again i mean that it, perfect timing for a movie like absolutely, this absolutely yeah. yeah i hadn't thought mm. of that but you're absolutely yeah. right yeah right on the it could not have been more designed for the zeitgeist mm. questions of self paranoias about uh, technology and yeah what literally what is about to happen mm. at the turn of uh, the new millennia so one, one of the elements that that i think gets talked up a great deal is of course the philosophy that's going on in the matrix or that it's nodding towards if not fully embracing one of the big ones that is constantly mentioned is uh, simulacra and simulation uh, because they they stick the book itself right in the opening scene for uh, the introduction of neo Uh, it's literally like the book that he opens and it has some computer discs in it so it's saying metaphor right Mm -hmm. in your face but what i find more interesting is and it has been spoken of i'm not the first person to note this but every time i watch the film i do see the way in which it plays out plato's metaphor of the cave it just seems like the perfect cinematic encapsulation of that plus it's got kung fu so (laughs) it becomes this fantastic visualization of the ascension towards understanding of of self and just to to briefly explain it to people uh, who who might not be familiar plato had this theory of of the forms uh about understanding the world around us but he he articulated it uh, through this allegory of the cave the idea being that if you presented people who were trapped in a cave 
shackled down, their entire lives were looking at shadows on the wall, their conception of their world would be limited to that experience. Just the shadows on the wall would be their entire universe. It would be the way that they conceived their entire lives. What he was arguing was that if, if you were to take one of those people, break them free from their shackles and drag them violently, you would have to, uh, he argues, dra- drag them violently up out of the cave and into the sunlight, they would be blinded and incapable of understanding the world around them. And what I love about The Matrix is it plays that out beautifully. Morpheus even says, you know, that the people who are still trapped in The Matrix or The Cave would react violently against you if you tried to free them and they weren't ready. And this is actually is exactly what Plato was arguing. And the the way Plato describes the descent back into the cave, the enlightened philosopher heading back down into the cave to try and explain to people what's going on, they would be treated as mad. There would be no way for for them to communicate their experience to others. It it becomes very experiential. The people who are freed have to experience it themselves, which turns into this whole discussion of belief that is one of my favorite elements of, of the first film, is that idea that the Oracle can't tell Neo that he's the one. She has to allow him to accept it for himself. And in fact, in direct violation of what she has told him, she tells him you're not the one, so that when he believes it, it has more substance. Can, can I jump in? Please. Uh, you may have a question at the end of that, but but perhaps I can just jump in anyway. First of all, you mentioned the Kung Fu, and this is just an aside, but uh, that's another element of the movie which I loved. Yes. The, the Orientalism that you you never see in yeah. Western action movies, right? Yeah. But there it was, Keanu Reeves doing Kung Fu. And, well, I think and, they'd made kind of... Yeah. Uh, American films had made kind of cheap nods to it. I think at this mm. point, Jackie Chan had been that, shipped it. over yeah. to get yelled at by Chris Tucker. But there was yeah. nothing actually embracing mm. the spirit of those Eastern films. Uh, but more to your overall point uh, about the cave allegory. This is something I've, I've often thought about with The Matrix, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. You, you've, you've certainly given it plenty of thought. I haven't really scanned the blogosphere, but I'm sure there's lots of people who have talked about it in their own reviews of these movies. And I, I should point out, I'm, I'm not attempting to, or we're not attempting to review these no. movies as, as movie reviewers, but pull apart some of the concepts in it. Now, this, this analogy with uh, Plato's cave allegory is certainly there. I, don't think, I think it's unavoidable. Um, and and almost obvious in the mm. first movie. If if you're familiar with Plato's works, and then I think this would be evident uh, when watching this first movie. But for mine, it doesn't really do enough to explain what's going on. Is this just in the first film, or, or uh, in uh, the uh, well in the in the first in just in the first movie? It's the allegory of the cave is incomplete in the first movie. Right. So what's missing is the interaction with the real world. So so yes. they're not they're not actually dragged out of the cave into the real world. Yeah. In the Matrix. They're dragged out of the cave in you know, into the sort of core of the earth where it's still warm yeah. but still fighting this battle. They don't really know reality. So but by the end of the movie, sure Keanu Reeves can fly. He knows he's more special than everyone else. But he hasn't experienced everything that is articulated by Plato. No, you're absolutely right. right. This is why there needs to be a second movie and a third movie. Ah, right. right? So, <laughs> Plato demands But it. But um, perhaps we'll talk about this more. I mean, we'll expand on this. Plato's cave allegory doesn't even do enough 
to explain the second and the third movies. Yeah. Um, I think there's something else going on. To me, this sounds more like a different cave allegory um, than Plato's. <laughs> I like should your... I expand or should we leave this uh, for, well, when, no, we no, get, when I... we get to the second and third movies? Like... I... Firstly, I'll agree yeah. with you, and mm-hmm. and then maybe we should move on to the second. Okay, movie. Right. but uh, firstly, I do, I do want to agree, agree with you. The um, I I do think that the the Plato's allegory is incomplete in the sense that they do literally just remain in the kind of cave chamber to mm. to labor the the metaphor. Plato does describe being dragged out into the chamber, uh, and we, as you said, we don't get that sense of them actually getting to the. Earth's surface and looking the, at the sun. For example, they're not dazzled by the sun. Yet. Exactly. I mean, that doesn't happen. They don't experience the real life yeah. yet. They and want to experience it. They know they that they want to by that point, but they absolutely they yeah. yeah. And I do think that that, yeah. that that the first film is really just about breaking the chains. It's all mm. it's all just entirely concerned with that idea of sloughing off constraint and embracing your own autonomy. So there's a sense of oh, I see the truth of my circumstance uh, can look back upon the people who are shackled and and have a sense of autonomy as being disparate from those who remain constrained but uh, i think you're right that 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 moment of ultimate revelation doesn't come perhaps it comes in the sequels so Uh it 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 does come in the sequels i think but not not in the way that you'd expect naturally from Plato's cave. But perhaps before we get to that, we should actually explain what happens in the sequel, should we? I think that's a good idea. Yeah. So I can, you gestured to me, so <laughs> uh, I'll attempt to summarise what happens in the second and third, but uh, this is controversial, so I'm, I'm not sure that... Okay, well, look, so, it, so this, you give it a go, yeah. and I'll jump in wherever I think is necessary. All right. Yeah. So... Coming for, and this is not written down, this is all off the dome, so it's going to be a complete mess. Coming four years after the the previous film, uh, The Matrix Reloaded reintroduces us to our heroes who are in the midst of what will be the longest night of of their life. And we actually begin the film mid-crisis, so it, it actually begins at the climax of the film where Trinity is in the midst of some sort of daring do that uh, we will learn later is an attempt to break into a, a kind of back door to the Matrix program. It, it turns out to be a vision that uh, Neo is seeing of the future where Trinity dies. So he's haunted by this prophecy of the woman that he loves. And uh, I, I laugh because the romantic relationship between those two never quite lands for me. But he mm. apparently the story tells me he loves her. So uh, the, the the woman that he loves is going to die and Neo is suddenly burdened with this responsibility to save not only the people of Zion, but the woman that he loves. We are introduced to Zion and find out that the machines are beginning an attack on the last city of mankind. So uh, motivated by Morpheus, Neo, Trinity and and a group of of renegade heroes head back into the Matrix to confront the well, 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 they don't know they about to, the architect. They have to find a key. They they are looking for the core. Yes. Oh, they, there we go. This is this is the prophecy they receive from the oracle. They must find the key master who will take them to the core, who will open the door for Neo. Right. So first, they have to find the key master who's under the you know um, heavily guarded by the Merovingian. There we go. Right. Yes. 
That's right. What are my favourite characters? Stop in on the Merovingian and Um, his uh, wife, wife, Persephone. Persephone, yeah. Then he goes through all that adventure of finding the key master. Key master's got the key, opens the door, and he gets to the core of the system. In which he's confronted by Colonel Sanders, Sanders. who tells him uh, in in a a wonderfully uh, shocking reveal that you're not that special, Neo. You were never actually the one. You are the result of an equation that uh, the computer system had trouble regulating because human beings would always try and break out of, of the Matrix. So in order to overcome this, we find out that the Matrix is not the first of its construction. It's actually like the sixth or seventh cycle. There is a clue to that in the first movie. That really? Happened. Well, yes. Um, when Agent Smith is interrogating Morpheus... And he says, uh, you know, we tried this once mm. where, where the world was too perfect and no one really believed it. There, was, yeah. you know, there were no problems, no wars, no conflicts. And so we had to reboot. And, True. And now we, we get it all explained. Um, but there have been multiple reboots. Yeah, there have been multiple reboots. <laughs> Each of which involves some kind of hero figure, a, a neo yeah. figure, who starts a revolution and, and breaks everyone out of their chains. But it's just so that... The machines can destroy the last city, reduce the human population, and start the whole process over again. Shove back people back into the matrix and yeah, begin it, again. It, it's almost a, a part of the machinery yes. itself. That, so the, the human endeavor for freedom is a part of the machinery that needs to happen for yeah. the machines culling. to sustain to, their lives. Yeah, right? we yeah. need to be culled because yeah. otherwise we get out of hand. And, yeah, which which again is so audacious. And and for all of mm. the issues that I'm going to have, particularly with the third film. That idea is is wonderful, but I do think it's at the heart of why people react so much against mm. the second film because that that first film is such a, a classic hero narrative with a sense of autonomy and freedom and power fantasy. And then you get to the second film and because the character has to feel it, the audience has to feel the, the shock of that revelation as well. It's like, no, 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 you, you're not special. You're just, mm. you are... Not only are you not an opponent to the machines, you're actually one of our tools. You're a mm. cog in this machine that mm. we fully govern. So, so it's it's alarming and it, it kind of a gut punch to the narrative. Of course, it's a setup for the third film, right? And and look, this is again. I think this explains why there needs to be a third film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's Neo's story spans over those three films. You you think by the end of the first movie, he understands who he is, yeah. But actually, he. He doesn't, yeah. right? Um, during the second movie, he, he starts to understand the problem that they're facing, right? Especially when he meets the architect. Yeah. And it is a gut punch to him. Remember, so he, he gets out of the Matrix and he doesn't know what to say to his colleagues. And he says, oh, look, I just need to get my head straight. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. This is, you know, I heard this mind-blowing information, but I don't really understand. But let me think about it for a while. And then the third movie, he, that, that's when he needs to come to a full realisation of who he is. Yes. Right. So uh, look, it's a, it's a narrative. It's an arc, but it needs all three movies. I to totally play agree. Out. For for the narrative yeah, yeah. that it, it is actually telling, yeah. you're absolutely right. And yeah. and I think that is why the second and third mm. film were conceived together and filmed mm. together and almost practically released together. I think it's only a yeah. few months apart. I guess it just then the question becomes: once you pull back from the individual narrative of Neo's personal quest for for selfhood and understanding. And it turns into more of a question of this civilization and, and how to break 
this pattern of behavior does it become satisfying then i mean do we need to steer into the third film and well i guess we can incidentally given that these films do especially the second and third blend one to the other i mean the, the second one ends as as a to be continued Absolutely. really doesn't conclude you can consider both at the same time the oracle is fairly crucial to the movie yes. and you may have noticed that on the doorway to the oracle is a message know thyself mm-hmm. so she points this out to him right and this is even in the first film yeah. no this is no this well it is in the first film but in the third film i think it is that she points it out she points out the sign to him he's asking her questions about why is it that i'm making the choices that i'm making I, I know I have to make a choice, but why is it that I have to make these choices? You're the oracle. Tell me why I'm making these choices. Yeah. Right? You can see the future. And, of course, she always gives her cryptic response. Her cryptic response is, well, just look at that sign. Yeah. And, he, and he, I think that's when he begins to understand, well, now I know what, I, what I'm searching for is to know myself. If I know what I am, who I am, what purpose I have... Yeah then I know what I need to do. But to arrive at knowing himself is not an easy process, yeah, right? It, yeah. it can't happen in the first movie. It's not just the realisation of, I used to live in the Matrix and now I don't. It's a realisation of the Messiah that he is. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? And, and now perhaps we, we, this gets into a, a, a Christian explanation of the movie, which is, I, I think, oh. probably, I don't know, but probably heavily scrutinised by... I think so. I'm not sure, Mm. um, outside Mm. of like the Passion and the Christ, uh, Mm. I I don't think there is a more overt Christian metaphor in film, aside from maybe Mm. that horrible Man of Steel film where Zack Snyder tried to turn Superman into Jesus. But uh, aside from that, uh, the the Matrix is pretty on the nose in that, particularly Mm. that third film, when, when... Spoiler alert: When mm. uh, when Neo sacrifices himself, it's, it turns into a cross, like an exploding it does, sort yeah. of there's a, cross, there's an illuminated of cross across his chest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there, and and there, even in the second film, there's mm. people are, are leaving offerings to him, like he's yeah. Jesus walking through. Mm. Uh, so it's uh, certainly that that's something that they steer into, and those ideas of sacrifice, and those ideas of, um, you know, his questioning of, of himself, and his, mm. it's definitely baked into the, the core of the, the films. Yeah, look, in, in some parts, it's obvious, like, when, when at the end, when he confronts the machine, and... and that uh, weird baby head that talks to him. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> what is that made of? I couldn't quite understand it's if like it's a, just a dust of... Yeah. Fibers, why are there little machine spiders crawling around everywhere? I don't yeah, quite understand. So I mean, so there, there are little details like that which are a little bit clunky. And we're talking the third film in the f- third film because there's some yeah. clunk in that, but trunk. but overall, to, for the narrative, yeah. what happens in that third movie makes perfect sense to me. And his journey. In the last bit, his his journey towards the machine, where he confronts the machine and tells the machine, "I, I can solve all your problems with the virus, which is Smith, and save this whole structure that we've got going here. Uh, save you and humanity as long as you give us peace. I can I can do this for you." So so he knows by then his purpose. Yeah. But his journey there is on one of the ships called Logos. Yeah. Right. So, so this is you know he's being carried by the word of God. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I know. Um, yeah. And 
and there he is. I mean, so it's very explicit. He's very Christ-like at the end. He is sacrificing himself for peace, mm. right? And what is peace? Well, it's it's love, and they all often talk about this as being a purely human emotion, but it's only a word for the computers, yeah. right? But it's a, it's although emotion, yeah. disproved at the beginning of mm. the third film, where we actually meet some programs who have chosen to embrace a more human empathetic sort of understanding of the world um yes they do but they still 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 insist this is purely nominal they they only talk Mm. about love as a concept yeah true and what's the other one of the programs says to him uh something about karma Uh, oh yeah 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 yeah. and 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 neo asks him do you believe in karma he says well karma is just a word just like love yeah and what it means for me is that i have a role to play and if I don't play it, there are consequences for me. And, of course, this guy works for the Merovingian. They all work for the Merovingian, right? Yeah. He's, a, he, he's the, the puppet master in the whole system. And that's the Merovingian's favourite term, consequence, right? Cause and effect. Mm. Cause and effect. <laughs> but, of course, so anyway, the, 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 effect, yeah. uh, the effect, though, of, of the machines, yeah. is, and particularly that, yeah. that machine construct that you're talking about that Neo meets in the subway, mm. is that he has procreated and and his affection for his offspring he acknowledges Mm. is irrational she doesn't serve a purpose she Mm. she doesn't have a machine function but he still Mm. loves her so it's that idea that they're they're on the precipice of discovering the the messiness of human emotions and the irrationality sure yeah yeah yep i I think that's that's right uh and actually uh, it, it occurs to me that we explained the first film we explained the second film. We haven't explained the third film. So just very quickly, we should give a summary of... I, I gave that okay. big convoluted attempt at uh, summarising the, the intricately plotted second film. Okay. So have at it for All the All right, film. well, I'll, I'll give it a go. Please, then, yeah. The third film, it is a continuation of the second. But the, the third is Agent Smith's film. Oh, yeah, actually. hello. Yeah. Okay. Because we discover why he exists. True. He well, actually, I think we discovered it in the second movie. The reason he exists is not as Agent Smith now, but as an independent yeah. entity within the Matrix. Is because Neo liberated him yeah. at the end of the first movie. So at the end of the first movie, Plato's cave, by the way, dragged him out of the end. Right. Okay, but but he's not human, so he can't be dragged into Zion. Yeah, he's just dragged out of the programming that was given to him so he's released from that that programming and now he's just an independent autonomous entity that wants to wants to grow and he himself. he becomes the computer virus that he accused human beings of being in the first film that's right yeah. he, he becomes one and he becomes human at one point so he, he embodies one of the Indeed. one of the humans so that's where the third movie begins where agent smith has embodied one of the humans who has jacked out of the matrix and he's now on board one of the ships yes and can wreak havoc from there right so he can kill the humans from the inside and dominate all of zion as well as the Matrix, so he keeps replicating himself. Yeah. Right, uh, so it is a virus. It is a human virus as well as an electronic one. So that's why the third movie is his. So we come to know this has happened in the second movie, and in the third movie, it, it is this replication of the virus that needs to be contained and becomes part of Neo's purpose. Mm. 
So just as we see that there are two opposing forces balancing themselves out in the oracle and the architect, um, so in this battle, there are two opposing forces in Neo and Smith. Uh, so that's why this final battle in the third movie has to occur between these two. And that, that's where it will be won or lost for either side in this battle they have in this fabricated city in the Matrix with millions of <laughs> Agent Smiths looking on. And let me tell you, I, I think Hugo Weaving is just incredible. Oh, yeah. Like, if there's one thing to come out of this trilogy that's, that anyone and everyone should praise, it's this guy's acting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's just amazing. He even pulls off the ultimate cartoonish maniacal laugh which is very difficult i mean with it, he yeah. doesn't even have a mustache twirl and he no. pulls off the <laughs> and he, somehow you buy it because yeah, it's hugo it. weaving but uh you buy no. it because it's it because it happens at this critical moment where he, he has replicated himself in the oracle yes right yeah. <laughs> so and now he has the vision now he sees it's almost complete yeah he just needs to overcome his opposite so they're, they're two opposing forces trying to... Their, their battle is, in fact, keeping the balance in this system. Yes. Uh, but if there's an imbalance, especially on the on for the benefit of the virus, then the whole thing's going to break down. Yeah. So Neo needs to... He, he needs to confront this virus to keep the world as it is. Right? Which, and, and to keep humans liberated. That's, yeah. That, you know, Which, again, yeah. is... Uh, I, I think intellectually that's fascinating and it works yeah. so beautifully but for the emotional language of film i think that's another thing that people ran up against and had a big problem with is that neo's fighting but what his fight actually should be just a pure sacrifice like the point is for him to just go hey destroy me which is is hard to visualize in a dynamic way which you know they, they make a fantastic attempt to do it i mean it goes full dragon ball z at the end of that yeah. that third film the whole city's being sort of wiped out as they fight but but i do think that there's something about that that sense in the emotional trajectory of the film that you're just watching your hero finally just get beaten but it's ironically a surrender not a defeat but it just it just feels very strange to, to watch that again in the second film he's told you're not that meaningful he is meaningful but it's through an act of giving up yeah I, again that's that's to put it in its most blunt unforgiving but again uh, I, I think this is this is partly why it's special I, I don't think there are many movies that are quite willing to sacrifice their hero like this uh, Empire Strikes you know, Back I'll put Empire Strikes oh, well, Back on the okay. alright but it's an unusual end for for the heroic character of a of a trilogy, and and an unusual not just for the character, it's an unusual end for the for the situation because it, it, in the end you you find well what, the only thing he's fighting for is for things to stay as they are. He's the humans. He's not campaigning for the humans to come back to the surface of the earth and Isn't rule he, over I the thought, machines again. I thought that was the no wide ending of the no. So so in in the end. I mean, are we allowed to spoil everything? No, no, right? absolutely, yeah. So, so in the end... So over he, 10 years old, I think. He, right. he defeats Smith. And we see the final scene is the architect and the oracle mm -hmm. uh, returned because he's defeated the virus. So everyone who he has infected is now back. So they're 
sitting in the botanical gardens in Sydney. I know, isn't yeah, it? Right, right. Lots of <laughs> lots of Sydney love. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Three films, and they are, are marveling at the peace and prosperity which now sits. And the architect says, "Do you do you really think this is going to last?" And she, I, I don't remember what she says, but you know, very wise words, no doubt, <laughs> yeah. in response. And and then then it ends. I mean, so that's they're sitting in the matrix. And all the humans, uh, Morpheus, Trinity, well, no, Trinity's dead, oh, yeah. but Mor- Morpheus and Niobe and, you know, the, the, the other sort of cranky general, uh, Locke, Locke yeah. right. Uh, Lots of locks and keys yeah, in that second yeah, film. I'll come the, back the, to that. The, but, yeah. the council, you know, the, the weird-looking oh, council. Geez. So they, they all continue their existence, but they continue their existence at the core of the earth. So that's all yeah. he, that, that's what he fought for, and that's what he... As preserved. However, in that in that final scene um, between the oracle and the architect, they they acknowledge that a promise has been made that anybody who wants to leave the matrix can. So it becomes yeah. rather than a constraint, it's a choice that people are afforded. That's that's true, but, yeah. but they're still they're still living in belief yes. down there. Yeah. Right now, this is where perhaps I can talk about the other cave. Please, a- allegory. Uh, it's not really an allegory. Uh, as perhaps it's a parable. This is one that I've only actually just recently come across, although I must probably acknowledge that many other scholars have known it for years. This is Aristotle's cave, which is repeated by Cicero. We only know it through Cicero. Mm -hmm. Cicero, on the nature of things, talks about Aristotle's description, a thought experiment is often described. If you imagine... It may be in opposition to Plato, I don't know. If you imagine these people living in a cave, they're not shackled, as in Plato's cave, they're, but they are still constrained, they're underground, and they are quite happy there because they believe that there is a sort of supernatural power sitting above their lives and looking after them. Right. But they haven't seen it, they just... It, it's a blindness right they just believe it Um, and they live there quite comfortably but imagine in this thought experiment that they have the opportunity to leave this cave and and they do and what they see there is not a new revelation actually what they see is a confirmation of what they believe and so they they look at the the sun and the clouds and the moon and the stars and they realise, yes, there, there is a divine power that has designed all of this and designed us. And seeing all of it just confirms it. And th- this became a parable used again in the late Middle Ages. Not necessarily in the same way that Cicero slash Aristotle used it, but the sense of, well, you don't need to prove God's existence. You know, if you believe, then all of his miracles will be obvious to you. This, and, and then we, you know, in the 17th, 18th century, we talk about the, the sublimity of nature, right? So nature is so sublime, as Edmund Burke used to talk about it, so sublime that it must all be a confirmation of, of God's providence. Hmm. Look, this, this is a, a bit of a, um, a ramble. No, I think, no, I'm not, not sure I'm making a lot of sense. But, but that allegory to me fits better in these movies than Plato's cave allegory. And 
to me, it's confirmed in that final scene or, or towards that final scene when he's in the ship, the Logos, mm-hmm. with Trinity and they're sort of bombarded with all these sentinels. Yeah. And he says to her, there's only one way of, you know, he, he can sort of shoot down a lot of them, but there's just too many of them. And he says, there's one way we can get out of this, just go up. Yeah. And so she, she goes up and she gets out of this dire, dark, terrible, scorched earth. Yeah. Up above the clouds. And she's dazzled by the sun and the clouds and the moon and the, the sky. fraction of a second before, uh, yeah. That's, that's her moment of confirmation of her belief. She believes in Neo from the start. Yeah. Right? But this is the confirmation. And... Neo himself is confirmed by it because he, you know, he's blinded with the struggle he had with Smith, but yeah. he he still sees it, right? And and he talks about the he tells her, "I wish you could see this light." And for him, that's the that's when he knows exactly what he needs to do. He needs to fight the virus yeah. and beat the virus. He he knows who he is. To me, that that's the allegory that fits. I like that more than Plato's. But the, my yeah. my my only response, yeah. though, uh, my um, my counter argument, I guess, would yeah. just be that the the Matrix films, despite the fact that they're the ironic rug pulls that they present in the second and third film, are about more acceptance and sacrifice than punching people in the face. Yeah. Uh, but still, they're it's a trajectory to realization that requires violence that that actually has to have defiance and and people yes making the decision uh to seek for self-understanding but but there does seem to be more effort that has to go into breaking those constraints than mm. than it, what it sounds like the the cicero aristotle yeah that, that that's that's true because they all live happily anyway in Cicero's um, story but there is still this moment where they they, for it all to be confirmed they need to come out of their situation but they they can't in the movie they can't all you know there's a million people living they can't all be on this ship and see but those who genuinely believe may well have this opportunity and Trinity Trinity is lucky enough True. Or, or yeah. if you go with the Plato analogy, like they're yeah. seeing finally the the sun and the pure forms and the understanding of the universe that then informs their yeah sure. But see, in Plato's analogy, they're dazzled by it. Yeah. In 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 Cicero's story, it's a, it's a confirmation of their religiosity, right? And and the whole I mean, so that Zion... suspicion that they've always had is yeah. finally okay. Yeah, I like that. that right. That, Look, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that this is no, 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 no. But... The explanation for the whole movie. This is just the thought that I have. No, I like that. I have no idea <laughs> what the Wachowskis were thinking. It's such, <laughs> but even the Wachowskis themselves have have acknowledged that it's it's a text that's basically a blender of religion and philosophy yeah. and sci-fi and and fantasy. It's they basically took everything that interested them and threw it all into one kind of uber text that would serve all purposes. But Which, they, again, is why I think it's so rich for people to unpack. Yeah, they must have thought about classical philosophy. Though. Definitely. Like it, yeah. As I said, I mean, the, the Plato's cave analogy, it's just that it's so evident there when you watch that first movie. Yeah. And I, I wonder if they were also thinking about Aristotle's and Cicero's. 
I think they had to. I mean, all, yeah. all of the, the primary kind of uh, cyberpunk texts mm. that they were drawing from are all concerned. You know, the man mm. and the machine and all, yeah. all of those elements are already in there. So I think even if they were just looking at it superficially, the the, the material and the, and the genre that they were most inspired by seeped in that thought. So, mm. um, you know, obviously you throw in some kung fu, some explosions, some nods to the internet existing, but it, it's still contains those essential mm. questions that have mm. plagued humanity yeah. forever. And look, a lot of the, the third movie in particular is, I, I know what your gripes are. It, it's, it's a mess. It, it's clunky. It's a mess. There, there are moments when like, you cringe. Yeah. For example, <laughs> uh, you know, they're getting ready for this battle and there's that kid who... I, I oh, just, I hate that kid. I, I hate that kid. Yeah. Now, oh, I, man. I, I feel like I should know who he is. No, be, like, well, but I I can never place him. I, uh, have you seen the Animatrix? The uh, because the the Matrix yeah. wasn't just two sequels; it was an yeah. entire multimedia franchise. So you had to yeah. play the PS2 video game, and you had to watch right. the animated series. And, yeah. and he's one of the the short films in the animated. Oh right, because he goes to Neo. You saved my life. I yeah. owe you, and I. And I, I've seen these movies a lot of times, and I never managed to see who he is in the no. first movie. Who, he, so all right, so that explains that. But well, it doesn't it, explain it. It it hand waves an explanation. Right. Okay. And even and, watching that short film, I still have no idea who the kid is. Or right. Okay. So this this kid emerges. You know, he's there. They're getting ready for battle, and the general comes and go, "How old are you, kid? <laughs> Eighteen, sir. If you said sixteen, I wouldn't believe you." <laughs> Right, it's like, man, did, where do you get? Who wrote this dialogue? <laughs> oh, I'll do my best. I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> right, so, oh, I think oh. that's uh, again. <laughs> right. I, I really, I have huge problems with uh, the third film, and it's it's all to do with that that yeah. section of the film that you're talking about, yeah. where basically it's the protection of Zion. At this point in the film, you get forty minutes or something of of watching Zion be attacked, a place I care nothing about. <laughs> Like populated with characters who are totally irrelevant to my experience of the film, uh, who are all kind of hackneyed and cliched because they're yeah. only introduced for a moment before they get like yeah. viciously torn apart by monsters, and and also like the the primary protagonists of of the trilogy are all elsewhere. They're all doing other things. So the, the whole and, and could, of Zion I mean the, is, the whole defense of Zion could have been alluded to. Yeah, actually, they could have think, heard it. I think we've said yeah. this before, but they could have just listened to it happening over the radio. Yeah. And you could have watched our heroes feeling the horror of that, mm. and actually tracked that emotional journey. But it's... yeah, I, I thought maybe it was an attempt at these little subplots or yeah. you know minor characters to flesh them out. But it didn't. That didn't work for me. But I, but the one again, I have huge problems with the the third film. I think it's sort of sloppy and unruly. But one way that I I can approach it is. The second film is so concerned with order and systems and structure and its locks and keys. Like yeah. if you start listening to all the times that key masters and locks get mentioned, there's even a character called Lock. Like they yeah. just shove it in your face. And again, as, as I mentioned, structurally, it begins with the climax of the film and then we wind backwards in time and see how we got up to that. So it's, it's all about the inevitability of events. And and so it's tightly wound. Then you get to the, the third film, which is 
thematically uh, a mess like the, the narrative goes all over the place you've got uh smith is freaking out you've got the brutal slaughter that's going on in zion the fight between smith and neo in the real world is kind of it's not even fun to watch it's kind of they're just two bits of meat sort of slapping into yeah, each other yeah, as they yeah. it's not it, it's not the best action no. sequence actually of the but, movie yeah. which again i think is yeah. is the point it's kind of the the third film is saying if the second film is all about the machines and machine logic and order and structure and systems, the third film is about grubby little human beings trying to save themselves. And, and so that involves lots of hammy acting and mm. uh, sort of misplaced emotional you know, excess. Mm. And, and it's just, again, it, it's, it's disordered. And I respect the, the intent there because obviously... After the first film, which is about personal advancement, the second mm. film, which is about, no, you're still part of a system. The third film is about breaking all of those expectations and creating something new. I'm just not sure, for me, if that sloppiness can, can come together in a satisfying way. They make an attempt, and I do think yeah. you're absolutely right, that, that that attempt to bind Neo and uh, Smith in their kind of yin-yang confrontation and the mm. sacrifice that, that ends with this potential hope for mm. a, a more revelatory future it works like it, it tracks i'm just mm. not sure if emotionally i'm i'm carried along with it yeah well and the i i i tend to agree like about the emotion the yes the the narrative i think is is excellent i um, i do think it's sound yeah, yeah. i think there's the, one thing that people don't give enough credit to no the, uh, and and often it's because they you know once they meet the architect they don't understand what he's talking about yeah. Uh, yeah i give up and then the third movie is all this you know it's just a shootout uh, yeah. or, the, or there's a big scene with a shootout and you just uh, sort of lose interest there but the the narrative is sound and and actually i think more than sound i think it's excellent mm. but you mentioned the love between neo and trinity which it, quotation marks, I, I don't know well, it, i mean yeah so they they tell you they love each other it, somehow there's there's not a lot of chemistry no. between the two actors I, I don't know what it is i feel so you bad just have for, to take it for granted they love each yeah. other yeah <laughs> and I, I feel really bad in the third film i feel really bad mm. for carrie ann moss because they mm. give her this big death scene that's almost comical when you watch it again like yeah, firstly yeah. she dies for about 20 minutes yeah and she's professing her love for neo who mm. god bless keanu reeves I, I love him but he's burdened with like his his eyes are burnt out at this point mm. so you can't even see the mm. little amount of emotion that he can kind of muster up in in that moment and and then she's giving him this dialogue about you know i loved you more than anything none of which has been rendered on screen up until mm. this point it's just this exposition of affection that gets blurted out just before she then has to croak it it's mm. again for such a what could have been like a fascinating character and and fascinating relationship it just sort of yeah well it it is and they're they're two i was gonna say good actors but i don't know if we can describe keanu Reeves as a good actor he's I mean, so great i, like, I, mean, I love he, him he's, but, yeah. he's good in that Right, I mean, it's perfect for him. Yes, and and she's a pretty good actress too. But it somehow, somehow yeah. that relationship. I mean, it, it's there. It's part of the movie. It's an important part of the movie. But on screen, it just. Mm, I, it's I don't true know. in the first film too. Mm. That, that like, it, her her character arc. 
sadly, it's mm. kind of bound to this belief in the man that she loves. And yeah. it, even then it doesn't quite track, but you kind yeah. of forgive it because it's at this big climactic moment where they're all about yeah. to die and she mm. she's what helps resurrect him. Yeah, when they lean into it even further in the third film, it just does not. Yeah, look, I think it's mainly the writing. And yeah. I think I do remember one criticism that was often made of the second and third movie. It's the, the Wachowskis write it. I don't know who wrote the first one. I don't think they did. No, they did. Yeah. The, the first one? Yeah, as well? first and second. Oh, okay. All of it written All and directed of it? By Okay, him. well, somehow they sort of lose their power to write the dialogue effectively, especially in the third movie. It might be a George yeah. Lucas thing. Like, the, mm. the first Star Wars, Lucas sat on that script for so long, mm. and it was so frequently rewritten and other like directors and 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 writers that he knew gave contributions to it i think the wachowskis were like that with the first Mm. matrix is that they couldn't get it produced for a while so Mm. they probably had a lot of input whereas when you come back for the the sequels everybody's told you you're phenomenal and that your writing's brilliant and i'm sure you don't get as many honest opinions on Mm. on the materials maybe it might have been rushed yeah, um, I mean that's another thing I heard about the third movie. But I think they they wrote yeah. the video game as well, so it's yeah. just a, a massive yeah. output of yeah. content, yeah. possibly a bit much. Yeah, but look, I, I I do find it hard to be too critical for you know a trilogy that I really do thoroughly enjoy. I could yeah. watch it. I mean, I watched it this week. I could watch it again next week. <laughs> um, I I could probably fast forward those scenes, right? Uh, but <laughs> But I still love it. I love the experience of, of watching it. Very true. Well, mm-hmm. Can I share with you a, a haiku? When I, I watched it most recently, I wrote a haiku. Yeah? It's Go called... Ahead. I'd love to hear it. Belief. The Matrix has you. Fooled by the half-good sequel, you'll suffer the third. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't suffer it. Uh, I, I love it. No, I, yeah. I actually, I, I do agree. Like, watching mm. it again, uh, I think conventional wisdom, as I think I mentioned in the intro, is that the second and third film are a complete waste of time. And I don't think you can watch those films again now, kind of removed from the initial disappointment, and still maintain that thought. Even if you don't love the, mm. the final film, I think there's so much meaty material in there to, to unpack and... I agree, and I think perhaps as a, as a conclusion, we can urge anyone who's listening to this to watch the movies again. I think so, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that you just have to watch them more than once yeah. to appreciate it. And there's a, a lot of little things that go on that help explain a lot of the narrative devices that we've been talking about that you can easily just miss yeah. in a first viewing. You know, characters that... Are here in the second movie that are actually quite important to the whole story, but you could easily just dismiss them. Um, characters like the Merovingian and Persephone that you know, I wish I could have seen more of them, mm. right? But you watch it the first time and you think, well, who the hell was that Frenchman, actually? Yeah, I don't yeah. quite understand what purpose he had. <laughs> but in this, the second viewing, you, you nail it. Right? I yeah. think it, it's, it's not that difficult to see. Once you know where all this is going, yeah, you, know, you can concentrate on these details. And you so, actually reminded mm-hmm. me just then of uh, one of the things that I love the most about the the second film is that introduction of the kind of gothic superstition, like mm-hmm. ghosts and werewolves and oh, yeah, uh, yeah, vampires yeah. and things that are sort of lurking in the background. All of which kind of gets abandoned in the in the third film. But yeah. again, 
for for a uh, a film series that is concerned with a blend of the cyber and the gothic that stuff's amazing like i, I really mm-hmm. like in the first and second film in particular that that whole history of uh, our supernatural fears being remanifest in the technological world um, great yeah and i i should add here uh, this is part of just to go back to my earlier point the the belief uh, that you have is not just in a messiah mm. but it's in the miracles that come with the messiah so the miracles come in all sorts well shapes and sizes and all forms right so the miraculous can be uh, something as as horrific as two guys in white outfits who can fly through walls right, right? It, it's odd and it's metaphysical right so to believe is to embrace the metaphysical to embrace the, the miracles good and bad however they may occur and i think again that illustrates for me why it goes beyond plato's right and that. and to a story about a confirmation a confirmation of belief I like right. that. But, I like that a lot. But uh, again, just I don't know if there's any sort of <laughs> consistency or truth to this, but no, uh, it's just great. the way that I read it. I really yeah. like that. I really yeah. like that a lot. All right. Um, so if you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe. We have new episodes every other week. And if you like what we're doing here, please do tell your friends and give us a review on iTunes. Those five star reviews really do help. I want to thank Dr. Luciano Boschiero for joining me today. My pleasure. And we will be back next time with another Campion Conversation. We hope that you can join us then. This episode brought to you by, uh, actually, this is, um, uh, just, just to explain, this is a little embarrassing. Our sponsorship has gotten a bit backed up over the past few months. So this is an old ad uh, that we were meant to run a little while back. So uh, apologies to our sponsor, uh, who I'm sure will forgive us for being a little out of date. This episode brought to you by the Fire Festival. You know, when people say an immersive music festival on a remote private island, you might wonder, how on earth could that be in any way feasible? Fine food, DJs, luxury accommodation, Blink-182 apparently. Isn't this festival being staged on an almost inaccessible landmass with no plumbing and monsoonal weather patterns? You might think to yourself, that sounds completely ridiculous. But that's the magic of the upcoming Fire Festival. As our real, actual advertising material declares, quote, on the boundaries of the impossible, the Fire Festival is a quest to push beyond those boundaries. And if that sounds like a bunch of vapid motivational poster vagary, then look at all these pretty people we filmed dancing in the beach for our commercial and don't worry about it. After all, someone must have thought this through. It's not like the whole thing is going to descend into a Lord of the Flies-style hellscape of spoiled rich weirdos adrift in a tropical purgatory. That would be just nuts. So buy tickets to the Fire Festival today. Send all your money to the shifty-looking guy with the perpetual flop sweat organising this whole thing. And remember, cool kids, we've got Kendall Jenner posting about us, so we must be legit.
Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.